my goodness, scorekeepers, welcome back. It is time for another episode of your favorite podcast, The Score, Minnesota Opera's deep dive into opera and classical music and pop culture coming straight to you from um, Winter Wonderland <laughs> once again. Child. Twin Cities, Minnesota. I'm not. I'm done. I need this to be over. But anyway, (laughs) enough about me. Um, Well, except my name is Rocky Jones. I'm the EDI director. And I, as always, I'm here with my two beautiful, lovely, talented co-hosts, our amazing Access and Civic Engagement Manager, Paige Reynolds. Hello, Paige. Hey, welcome back. Welcome yes. back. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, as always, our vice president of impact, Lee Bynum. Happy Aquarius season, Lee. Why, thank you. Nice what and you, weird out. <laughs> yes, yes. What are you going to do this Aquarius season? You got any big plans? Uh, other than turning a year older, I am probably going to stay indoors and try to be warm moisturize quite a bit drink some water do all of those things because this dryness going along with this coldness it is not it is not not it is not (laughs) it's really not it's really not (laughs) but i mean Paige, you grew up in all of this Mm -hmm. (laughs) help us southerners help us southerners (laughs) um i mean i think the best black remedy i know is some good old vaseline mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay i just remember wrong. my face getting slathered with vaseline before we went outside <laughs> but it got the job done um uh, my partner is he's uh he moved since he moved from dc it's been quite an adjustment from like the dc swampiness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm the Mm -hmm. minnesota dryness um Mm -hmm. i can tell you he's on a strict regimen of shea butter all over in the morning (laughs) shea butter all over at night before bed Mm -hmm. and that has seemed to work Um, okay you know so just saying you you just got to (laughs) be thorough yeah use the butters use the oils use the don't go out and get the jergens lotion whatever it's not gonna get it shea butter Mm -mm. real raw you know (laughs) believe it or not in our relatively small two-bedroom apartment we're running five humidifiers all day literally five because it has been so unbelievably dry and you know I live with the singer right so like there's also like a different set of things that happen and you know we need to protect his larynx because that is part of how we make Mm -hmm. our money in this house but yeah it is I I didn't I I don't know what to tell you. I've never had to moisturize like three times a day. It's crazy. It really is. Like right now, I'm sitting here with my hand lotion right next to me. (laughs) (laughs) I apply it liberally. And as you all know, I live with a native Minnesotan who literally the other day was like, you know, I'm thinking about buying a humidifier for the plants. And I'm like, for the plants? (laughs) 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 good god what about my skin my skin my beautiful melanated skin (laughs) 
<laughs> well, speaking of beautiful melanated skin, um, <laughs> we have a big show for you today. We've got um, the folks from Opera Ritravada joining us a little bit later. But joining us right now is our new co-worker, well, new-ish colleague. Um, <laughs> it was so exciting. Um, the other, a couple of weeks ago, we were having um, a meeting with some um, uh, artists of the global majority um, here in town, and they were helping <laughs> us um, think through some of the issues surrounding the new space that the Minnesota Opera acquired that will hopefully be opening later this year. And I remember one of them looked at us and they were like, oh my gosh, look at all of this Black leadership at Minnesota <laughs> Opera. And I was like, absolutely, F yeah. And it's so exciting that we have now a fourth member of our team. Yeah. Um, who is here joining us today. He will be with us for the entire show. Um, and so we just want to introduce everyone to our new Access and Civic Engagement Director, Mr. Samuel Phillips. Welcome to the score. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, hello everybody. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. How are you today? I'm good, I'm good. I hear y'all talking about this weather <laughs> and this shea butter and this cocoa butter and my skin has not been the happiest uh being in new orleans for what almost 15 years mm, bless yeah. your heart mm. yeah it's not a, <laughs> yeah my skin my forehead and my elbows <laughs> man, it's really not it's really not it's not the wave right now but my shea i got shea butter on deck <laughs> Well, we are so excited to have you here, not just Cheers. on the show, but just here, just in general. Amen. Yes, absolutely. And so we just want the people to get to know a little bit more about you. So anything you want to tell us about yourself and, you know, your new position here at the opera? Right, right, right. Man, so who am I? I am son <laughs> of Earl and Marsha Phillips, you know, born in Boston. I tell people I was um, born in Boston, um, raised in Minnesota, but kind of shaped in New Orleans. That's kind of how I view my life. So son of Earl and Marsha Phillips, shout out to mom and dad. Um, <laughs> I'm a multi-instrumentalist, educator, administrator, live event producer, music producer, you know, kind of all encompassing freedom of thought, stream of consciousness, professional vibe that I try and set for myself is kind of uh, how I look at myself and view myself. And um yeah and well, I know <laughs> well yes and you have uh one of the all-time great speaking voices um I just <laughs> wanted to put that out there at some point I am also going right. to go through puberty and I hope to sound like you on the other side of it oh me yeah too I, god knows I, I think I get it from <laughs> my mom and kind of um her side of the family uh, let's just say <clears throat> my voice changed when I was like 11 yeah like 11 so I went away to this camp it happened like this I went away to camp and for like a week and then I got back in the car and you know picking up the kids and put the bags in the, the trunk and everything so I think my mom didn't really hear me and my sister that much and so we're driving it was like two hours away and we're driving back and I started talking and my mom literally stops the car she turned around and she goes what happened to my son and I was like what are you talking about she was like you sound like a man 
I was like 11. <laughs> and it was really weird because I'm I'm a relatively small person, small human, you know, been relatively, you know, short and skinny my whole life. And so I had this full handlebar mustache when I was 12. Oh my goodness. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Puberty yeah, yeah. came for your neck. Oh my <laughs> God. It was, it was crazy. It's crazy. But nothing else on my face grew. And I, for those who can't see me, you're on the you're on the radio waves right now. So you can't see I have a beard, but I had a I had a mustache, you know, and my voice was deep, but I was like four foot ten. Right. <laughs> and like in like 90 pounds. So people will look at me like, yo, what is it? Who is this kid? Right? He's an alien. Uh, yeah, I will start talking. They would just look at me like, "What?" But cheers, thank you. Yeah, well, one I, thing. That, absolutely. <laughs> one thing that we were talking about the other day that I found really fascinating was that you um, have a lot of classical music experience, right? Um, and that you used to play the bass. Yes. Um, and I really found that story that you told me about when you first learned how to play the bass. Mm -hmm. um really really interesting and mm. do you mind sharing that story yeah which one of just uh kind of how it came to me yeah 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 um i started out on piano in massachusetts and my family and i we moved to the twin cities in 1997 and fifth grade 10 years old they played violin viola cello and i was in the library sitting on the floor wasn't too <clears throat> excuse me wasn't too interested in what those had to offer so i kind of checked out and Miss Sherber was her name. Um, shout out Miss Sherber, Cedar Island Elementary, Maple Grove. <laughs> she plucked, for real, she plucked the E string. And I was like, yo, that's crazy. <laughs> like, I wanna play that. And they were like, nah, bro, like you're too small, right? Getting back to my original, my, my stature issue. And um, they were like, you're too small. And I was like, dude, I wanna play that. Well, why don't you play cello? And I said, I don't want to. And then they said, okay, I think they, they thought it would be an I gotcha moment where they were like, okay, well, if you go home and your parents say you can play the bass, then we'll let you do it. Brought the pink slip home, talked to Pop, and he laughed at me. And I was like, no, I'm serious. Like, I really want to do it. And I think they, they had seen that I had already some relatively big success playing piano already and winning some competitions in Boston. So I don't think, I think they knew that focusing on the musical aspect and the technical aspect wouldn't be too much of an issue so he was like that stipulation for you playing this instrument is that you know is that you know you carry it and i was like bet they signed a 90 dollar check went back to school the next day and they were like well we don't have a you know we you, we need to give you a quarter size base but you're gonna have to deal with a half size and i was like bet we don't have a quarter i was like bet they gave it to me and the the rest was kind of history and it, it just be kind of uh, became a full extension of my personhood, a full extension of my body. I, I was telling Rocky that it was the only thing I've ever done in my life where I felt like I didn't have to think about it at all. Um, I would put the bow on the string and we're talking specifically classical music because I think there's association with, you know, you know, the black experience or, you know, the African-American experience that, you know, we have proclivities, you know, natural you know, leadings towards R&B and hip hop, which I got that in my veins too, don't get it twisted, right? <laughs> but um, the funk comes, the funk is in the DNA, but I think just the classical canon, you know, the Bach and Brahms and like playing with a bow, playing Arco, you know, it just came, you know, started out on French bow. And then when they switched me to German bow, it was just, it was like a match made in heaven. And um I felt very fortunate that I was given the human opportunity to experience life through that lens. It definitely changed how I view myself 
And it definitely changed how I view just like people, just like having the opportunity to focus on something so passionately and so clearly. Definitely grateful for that. May I ask if there are ways that growing up in orchestras mm -hmm. has come to shape how you think about the work that you do now in a different part of classical music? Well, I think playing in an orchestra, but I think also specifically playing the bass is a different thing because the role, the, the mental process, the perspective you have to have as a bass player is so team oriented, so not about you in any way, right? Like you can be, I know some cocky bass players, you know, I know some people that have a chip on their shoulder, but I'm like, bro, you're playing whole notes and half notes and eighth note rhythms, 16th note rhythms that have to be perfectly in tune. They have to be perfectly in rhythm and you have to blend with your sound of your section and you have to blend with the orchestra. You are strictly a foundational role and you are there to make other people look good. If you play the bass or the bassoon or tuba or, you know, euphonium, if you're playing contraband or what have you, there's certain instruments where you're not here to be looked at. You're here to support and not necessarily in a, from a perspective of false humility, right? But it's like, you want the best for everybody. You genuinely want everyone to look the best, look the part, to sound good, to feel good. And I think that inherent spirit of collaboration and support has just transferred to every other area of my life, whether it be working on this team and um, finding ways to communicate and find what people need to get their job done well, um, while also remaining committed to doing the best work you can to also make sure other people can do their work well. Um, I think 100% that came from playing the bass. And I think having the teachers that I had in the double bass instruction um, lineage and tradition that was passed down to me, um, you can go direct line to like Oscar Zimmerman, who, you know, was like a bass pedagogue god in that world. You know, my teachers had direct, you know, hands to that, um, hands to that, that tradition. So um, 100%. I'm going to go back to like what she said about, um, about uh new orleans like uh yeah. a shaping you too say yeah. some more about that because i love me some nola um, yeah, i want to know <laughs> uh yeah how did it Im impact you as a person could be musically professionally or like yeah in general well i tell people now i'm new more i'm more new orleans than anything um i think just because of the amount of time that i spent down there you know i spent eight years or nine years in minnesota eight years, you, I'm not, excuse me, nine years in Massachusetts, eight years in Minnesota, then, you know, almost 15, you know, in New Orleans, um, very formative years. Um, I also tying it back to the base, that was when my injury prohibited me from pursuing a further career in the performance, the orchestral performance space. So I think, and then also you're looking at, you know, DC is chocolate city, right? Mm -hmm. But New Orleans is also known as chocolate city right and there is a certain potency from being around my people that you get in new orleans that you can't get anywhere else i mean the draft tradition comes from there the culinary tradition from there uh the mardi gras indians you know just the spirit and the vibe of the city and like how the pride that comes along with that and seeing how people interact with each other you know, it's the South, but it's not Baton Rouge. It's not Mobile. You know what I'm saying? It's not Jackson. I mean, you you know what it is. The poverty line is real. You know, the the opportunity gap is real. 
you know, like the wealth gap is real and you see that. And I think having to reshape my mind and like pursuing my passions while also being around a potent black dominated culture where there was such pride and such lineage and respect for these traditions and me being in a creative space as well, where there's a certain level of vulnerability you have to have to be open to new information to change how you are. Like New Orleans was just a place that just shifted everything about me, how I talk, how I think, how I act, how I view the world. Everybody from around the world comes to New Orleans, everyone, because it gives you something. You got people from France, from Bangladesh, from India, from Canada, you know what I'm saying? From, you know, from Croatia, you know, Serbia, everyone's like, yo, I gotta go to Jazz Fest, I gotta go to French Quarter Fest, I gotta go to Mardi Gras, I gotta just come to see the cemeteries, I gotta go see, you know, a second line, I gotta go, you know, Super Sunday, St. Joseph, St. Joe's, whatever it may be. And you meet all those people, it's just a big melting pot. Um, and the way of the vibe, the city is preserved through that pride. And um, it teaches you just how to be prideful within yourself and uh, while also being a part of that community, that that communal aspect is also a big thing because there's so many conversations and so many people in institutions where they're like, we know we have our issues. We know we have like our in our inner family fighting, but like, we want to take care of each other. We want to be like after Katrina, I got down there right after Katrina and like the resilience that the people showed to rebuild that city and the education system. You know what I'm saying? Me being a teacher, like being in that space on the front lines, it also teaches you how to just be authentically communal unapologetically for the sake of the greater good of the people around you so a shout out to new orleans <laughs> yo new orleans is the re- man i'm gonna tell you something man new orleans is the real deal bro it's it's the real deal i recommend everybody all the listeners man if you can get down there don't go to bourbon street you know what i'm saying <laughs> like don't go get you some beignets and just call it a day like interact with human beings that you think represent the true lineage and the culture and the tradition of the city, go talk to them and ask them to show you around and they will. And I think you'd come back with your spirit and your whole life changed for the better, for sure. Are there, are there substantive differences to doing equity work in a context like the Twin Cities relative to New Orleans? Because something that you said that I found so interesting was what the black community was in New Orleans, how it functioned and how it's different. And here in the Twin Cities, we also have a vibrant multicultural population of black people, but there's also a very different history of being black here in the Twin Cities. So is there a way that doing this work is different here than it was there? 100%. And I think the, the, the first distinction that comes to mind is demographic makeup right mm-hmm. the percentage of like the the cultural breakdown of the city right you said like we talk about the twin cities you know new orleans is one city right it's one community uh and as, as i said let's not get it twisted it's still the south right it's still real like you're gonna see black people doing very specific jobs that you won't see white people doing for instance like i came up to minneapolis and like seeing white garbage truck drivers and white fast food workers, I was like, yo, this is crazy. Like you see it down there, but like, it's not necessarily because people wanna be doing this work. It's because let's keep it real, opportunity is not provided on an equal playing field. So, but that's the main two core, the black and the white with some, you know, other populations interspersed here and there. Um, But up here it's, you have the Hmong, you have the, you know, you have the Latinx, you have 
um, Cambodian, you have, you know, Indian, you have white, you have black, you have, it's like, it's like a United Nations all in the space. So I think there's a certain elevated level of cultural nuance and complexity intentionality that's required to achieve the end result in the end game of the work, whatever your result, your end, your intended result or objective is to achieve that it needs to be more universally applicable up here, which is actually what you want to have happen, right? Because intentionality and authenticity is how you achieve real results with people by building relationship, right? And finding as many ways to deliver your message to as many diverse audiences and diverse people groups as possible only embedders the work that we're doing it makes us more well-rounded in our thought process and makes us more community oriented and community minded. And I think at a higher level, it elevates the need for like institutional accountability, not saying that isn't in New Orleans, you still need to do that because there's still a whole nother history of like French colonization and Creole, you know, white, what is white passing versus not like all this stuff is very real. So you have to navigate those spaces down there. It's just a matter of translating it translating the work that you know I've learned how to do down there you know and collaborating with y'all to make sure that we're achieving that same goal up here it's just it's just more I say more elevated nuance complexity to achieve what we need to one of the reasons I'm really excited to have you here uh, Samuel is um you know our EDI work gets a lot of shine you know right. <laughs> if I do say so myself. <laughs> Yo, son, we gotta keep we gotta keep it real, dude. This is this is all from your this is all your brainchild, bro. You no, started this stop, work a stop, minute stop, ago. Stop, Come on stop, now, stop, call it what it is. This is all South Rocky. <laughs> oh, you're too kind. You're too kind. Um, but also our education programs get a lot of shine. But yeah. this is an opportunity for us to shine a light on our access and civic engagement work. And mm -hmm. so we've got both you mm -hmm. and Paige here. And so yeah. I'm really excited to let the people know just some of the exciting things that you all are working on. Yeah, um, I feel fortunate, you know, every time I talk to Paige, you know, I tell Lee this, I'm like, yo, Paige is one of the people, you know, that you work with um, where you don't where you're not really required to think about how to achieve bottom lines and goals because they're so direct and clear with what they want and how to get the job done uh and we had a really great conversation i think it was right before new year's eve just about us putting our money where our mouths are right like i just talked about me being in new orleans i'm not gonna speak for her because you know she got a mouthpiece and she can you know talk about her experience on her own but you know her being in dc and whooping being like, yo, we come from these places and we're going to get restless if we're not being real about what we're doing and how we're doing it. You know, and to be on a team where we can look in the mirror and be like, we have these goals, but are we doing enough to be equitable, to be accessible, to challenge how we're raising money, to go to places where people actually need this work and need these conversations, like in the prison system, male and female prisons, right? Or, you know, are we elevating underrepresented people in the media the way in which they need to? Are we developing digital content in a way that doesn't put us in the driver's seat, but puts them in the driver's seat? And for us to kind of have that non-negotiable level of accountability and expectation to be like, if we're not meeting these standards within, standards within ourselves, then it's probably best if we just stop doing the work. And I, it was kind of like I left the conversation at least with being like, all right, dude, like 
I'm kind of new to this team. She's been here for a while, but like, I have no doubt in my mind now after this conversation that I, I, I got a ride or die next to me that's willing to go above and beyond to get this work done because we're driven by the pe- what the people need, not what we want them to need. And we can go into detail about what that work, what, about that work uh, is, you know, and do some of the projects that we're working on. But I think that being the foundation, the driver for me is what I'm most excited about, most passionate, you know, yeah, I'm most excited about and working with Paige in the civic engagement department for sure. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> it's real, like, dude. For real, I, I, I definitely felt that the first time too, because I mean, yeah, like living in DC for a while and then being from Detroit, like we kind, but we say what, what we mean and we mean what we say. So right. <laughs> like having that understanding. And I think also like, I mean, we were talking earlier about the, the demographics of, of, of Minnesota and it's like a it's like a num a big numbers difference. It's not like there's no models of like successful like black folks to look at. It's just mm-hmm. there's there's less. So being able to having mm-hmm. been to these places where black folks are really being able to create more um robust niches for ourselves, like mm-hmm. just because of like numbers and you know, geographies, histories, all of that. And I think us having an understanding that there's no shortage of black brilliance in this world. There's no shortage of, (laughs) of like people of color who are brilliant. Like there there's people who look like us, who even if in Minnesota, we maybe Mm -hmm. don't see it in the forefront as much. We have an understanding that there's people around us all the time who are just like us, who are trying to solve the problems of our community, who really care, who are interested in arts and culture, who are interested in things like opera too, who care mm. about how the arts can, you know, just be a part of bettering all of our lives. And so like, it's it's awesome to work with somebody who also, I mean, I don't think anybody on our team has that mindset, but doesn't like have a scarcity mindset about that, you know, um, who, um, I think I look forward to like the imagination. <laughs> I feel like we can we can have quite a bit of imagination like mm-hmm. uh between the two of us about like what we can about what's what achievable. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, I mean to talk about like the specific work like I mean, anonymous lover, we had to pivot a little bit. But thank you, Miss Omicron. The original idea. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Omicron. Thank you, Armarion, for dancing all over our plans. Um, poor Omarion. <laughs> poor Yo, man. They, dra- they dragged that man through the dirt. Yo, <laughs> that dude was so great. Such he really is. He done found meditation and yoga and stuff. And he's just like, ha, 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 ha. I love the jokes. Keep it light. Stay healthy, people. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what that means, Google Omarion Omicron, and you'll just, that's all we're going to say. (laughs) 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 But like, I think our original idea for what we had for um, offstage, we were going to partner with Alliance Francaise. And I mean, I'll let you talk about it more, Samuel, because (laughs) 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 I mean... I, I just think I just think we get, were able to get creative in the original right. conception and just what it's turned into. Right. Like we were able to still do something that I feel like mm. is fresh, is different, and 
like will help breathe life into Chevalier and the production and you know give some more context but I'll let you talk more about that well to that I think it's important to note that you know I started this role you know relatively recently and Paige had begun a really clear plan about you know having that partnership with Alliance Francais that she said um to have like a like just like an event where people came and learned about the history and some singing and some song and you know just to come vibe come hang out and of course Omicron you know shifted that and required us to you know create a virtual format and uh that's part of the reason why this how this podcast came podcast came into inception and um had the great opportunity to you know we brainstormed and felt we should do like an Instagram takeover and um we collaborated with the Marcom team here Minnesota Opera Company with Essie and Severin shout out Essie Sleverin and Essie and Severin those cats you know they handle their business and we're really we're able to create some really cool content to share about Ballone's life uh, Joseph Ballone's life and the history and you know the set behind the scenes and I think uh to Paige's point about black excellence and leadership I think it's a really good opportunity you know for us as a department to collaborate and show how well-rounded our skill sets and our offerings are to the broader organization, to the broader community, listeners, you know, to be in charge of doing this Instagram style takeover and social media takeover. And these are very specific skills to have in our current context where skilled set diversity is key and paramount. And to have people like Frankie on a team and Faye and Paige step up to the plate and brainstorm and put stuff out there for the world to see and create a, a robust and clearly defined strategic product uh, that is both impactful, insightful, on, on, and historically informative in the midst of just like in the undefined, you know, COVID times, you know what I'm saying? Like no one knows what's gonna happen. And people was like, yo, we gotta pivot, get this job done. And everybody stepped into the plate and swung and hit a home run. Uh, and I'm just excited for what the future holds. You know, I think um, the pivot game was strong and yeah, appreciate you, Paige. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's cool. Lee, jump in. No, I just, I appreciate, I appreciate everybody appreciating everybody. We do have a, a great team and, and shout out to Sarah and Matt and Faye and Frankie and Pablo yeah. um, have done some really, really thoughtful work in terms of making concrete these ideas of EDI and how they right. can be showing up in the operations, the programming and the art that we're doing. I'm really happy and thankful to be a part of this team as well, but we have guests. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we do. We've got guests coming ones. through. So Sam, you wanna hang out? Cheers, yeah, let's talk. All right, cool, cool, cool. So we are gonna be joined um, after the break by our friends at Opera Retrovada. And for those of you who don't know, they are a portable, democratically structured, uh, small opera company um, that specialize in restoring um, the works of female composers, women composers, and mm. composers of the global majority that perhaps have been unjustly overlooked or lost to history come on now um because it wasn't just all old white men <laughs> in powdered wigs um there are all sorts of people who are 
have been a part of this art form for centuries. And so they are taking their work and bringing it back to the floor, putting those works back into the canon, making sure that they're being performed and people are hearing them all over the world. Amen. And one of the things that they have done is that they have restored a number of Joseph Ballone's um, pieces um, that were previously thought to be lost or um, what have you. Um, and so we're really excited to have them on as part two of our Joseph Ballone extravaganza. And they're going to talk to us all about Joseph Ballone's music, um, what it's, you know, the process of restoring it, bringing it back to life and performing it for everyone. Um, so we're really excited to have them here and stay tuned. We'll be right back with Opera Ruchavada. Thanks for sticking with us this afternoon, everybody. Um, we have a really, really special set of guests with us today from Ritravada. Um, we are very excited to have another conversation about Joseph Ballone and the Anonymous Lover. So I will pass things to our co-host Samuel to do the bios. Thank you, Lee. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We're really excited to have you here. Uh, so give a little bio, some background information for the people that you're going to be hearing on this wonderful podcast about the anonymous lover. We have George uh, Giannopoulos, Nick Giannopoulos. He's a composer based out of Los Angeles, specializing in contemporary instrumental and vocal music. We have Stephen Carr, who's a resident of Long Beach, California, and he is a compelling interpreter of opera and symphonic repertoire. And luckily for him, he's in demand across Southern California as a conductor, organist, pianist, and vocal coach, which is awesome. I need to learn from you and get some tricks to the trade, how to be in demand for the work that I'm doing. So we can touch base offline about that later on. We have uh, from the Dominican Republic, our brother Mishkar Nunez Fidel, who is a violinist and historically informed performance specialist and conductor based out of LA as well. And then his wife, um, who is a concert, uh, who has a career in concert and studio engagements as a violinist, uh, Miss Lila Nunez Fidel, who has a robust teaching career, uh, teaching classes at Los Angeles Pierce College and the Colburn, the prestigious Colburn Schools Music Academy. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. 
Yeah, we are so glad to have you all. I am so excited to uh, nerd out a little bit about your process, <laughs> about Balloon, about what it's like to excavate um, the unsung, uh, but I'll let you get into who you are and exactly what you do. And I'll direct the first question towards Lila. So if you could tell us who is Opera Ritravada and how did you come about this particular work of uh, restoring uh, Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de St. George's work. Yeah, thank you so much. So, um, and we're so excited to be here today. Um, Opera Vitravada was founded about four or five years ago, and we're an organization dedicated to finding and performing and promoting works by composers of color and women, works that have been unfairly neglected throughout history. Um, and so we had a number of projects, performing projects to start with around that. And for our first performance, we were interested in the music of Joseph Ballone, who's such an amazing composer. And, you know, we found this manuscript, which had only been performed a couple of times in modern history and only, you know, existed except for the overture as a manuscript. Um, so we worked on performing a couple of the arias from that. And we found there was just so much that needed to be kind of done in order to have a modern performance of that. So we started to do some work on that. And one of our um, goals was to put those performances on YouTube and make them publicly available to kind of wear, raise awareness about this piece because it was hard to have any, you know, any of the actual vocal parts of this piece hadn't really been um, publicly disseminated. So that's how the project gets started. And we're a chamber-sized organization. We try to work in, in also in a way that's informed by chamber music and very um, equitable. Thank you. Thank you for this. I'll pass it over to, to Samuel. Yeah, great. Uh, thank you for that little breakdown. Um, so we've all been doing a lot of research and a lot of, you know, just trying to excavate, you know, historical data and, you know, stories and all the things to kind of inform how we do our work in the impact department for uh, the anonymous lover, you know, our part of our public programming and community engagement and especially COVID times we want we need to make sure that we're giving our audiences as much information as possible right. Um, and something that we've been talking about within our team is how alarming and shocking it is that not many people know who Balone is Chevalier, you know, he has a bunch of different names, which is a whole nother side sidebar conversation, right? Like, who do we call him? What context if, if he's in the court with the royalty or what have you? Uh, but you want to talk about, uh, I think Mishkar, we mentioned that, you know, kind of direct this question at you, like, who is this man? Right? And why? What is your opinion for why he is not part of the broader canon or in conversation when it comes to like, Western art music history? Like why, why is he not at the forefront? Yeah, he certainly should be. Uh, that's, that's, that's definitely uh, right. But uh, Joseph Ballone was an amazing person and in many respects, a uh, fantastic violinist, fantastic composer, as you already know. Um, also a fencer, uh, yeah, undefeated fencer at the time. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you a quick story about him. That there's uh, five assailants, five people came <laughs> to basically jump him and he fought them all off, all five of them just just by himself he was a very impressive person in fact the president of the united states at the time john adams said that um 
he was the most educated person in Europe, um, uh, Joseph Bolon. So that's already pretty high praise. But um, he he was born in in the Caribbean uh, and then uh, ended up going to to Paris uh, due to some problematic things that happened with his uncle in the island of Guadalupe and. Uh, so ended up in in um, in Paris, had an amazing education, and uh, rose pretty quickly because he was just so talented uh, through the ranks. But unfortunately, uh, he also got uh, um, a, uh, a a job opportunity in Versailles, in the court. But uh, there were a few singers who wrote to the king saying they they would not work for uh, uh, a mixed race man or. A, or a person of color, um, mm. so that he didn't get the job. Uh, but um, he did, in fact, uh, uh, he was able to to uh, to get a, a fan another fantastic job at, uh, I, I believe, Madame de Montesson, right, Athena? Um, uh, the uh, at this at this opera house, and he was uh, basically concert master and, and uh, music director there for for a while. And this is where he also composed the Anonymous Lover. Uh, but and collaborated with Madame de Genlis, the 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 writer. Um, later on uh, in his life, Napoleon wanted to rise. Well, was rising to power, and not just wanted to. He it was it was in, inevitable at that point, and uh, he wanted to bring slavery back. And so um, mm. Joseph Boulogne lost a lot of. Uh, what his work, you know, a lot of it was destroyed, uh, um, and uh, he lost a lot of, well, a lot of connections, a lot of people. Basically, what would you would expect uh, if uh, you suddenly your life became less valuable to society? Um, so that was a, a very unfortunate thing, and because of that. The name of Joseph Boulogne became, um, well, just kind of got lost in, in history. Uh, obviously, very unfairly, uh, very specifically unfairly um, uh, due to slavery in this case. So, yeah, it, it was an in, interesting story this man really had. Yeah, and if I could just add, even though, you know, his legacy was suppressed at the highest level, um, there was still this interest, and in some ways, he just his legacy couldn't com completely um, be squashed. And there was a play, a very romantic, somewhat fictionalized, you know, French play that kind of kept his myth going just enough. Um, and he, of course, as a as a fencer, he's important just in the history of fencing. Even if he had not never been a musician, he would be important just in the history of fencing. It was that, you know, amazing a swordsman. And as a, a horseback rider, I, I understand too. What? <laughs> right. Well, yeah. one of the first, um, I think, the first, you know, black regiments in the French Revolution. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is so fascinating. It's like he was a mixture between like Barack Obama, like in Neo, right from the, <laughs> from, from the Matrix, right? Like, what is it people say? If you invented this character, nobody would believe he had existed. Yeah. It's right. Right. Exactly. It yeah. sounds a little fictional. Yeah. Real life. Like he was real. Yeah. Right. And I think that goes to the beauty of like what happens when people kind of live to their fullest potential. Right. And I think, Lee, you probably have some interesting insight on this, something it's fascinating. Like you hear you look at Beethoven, even though it was kind of reactive to what was going on his time. He wrote a symphony 
honoring in a lot of ways Napoleon, right? <laughs> and then it's like you also in like you hear that in Western art music, Baroque Symphony, great huge theme, huge go viva la revolution. But right. then you have like the other side of the coin, which is like eh, he might be responsible for the reason why no one knows who this man Malone is. Well, and we also know that that Beethoven, when Napoleon crowned himself emperor, scratched out that dedication on the on the right. manuscript. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So while we're actually talking a little bit about how we had lost him, I'd love to think a little bit about how we ended up finding him again. Um, by training, I'm an historian of performance. So I've spent a lot of time in archives really trying to piece together the wherefores and whys and hows and whens things were happening in ways that we don't immediately have access to right now. So I'd love it if you could share a little bit about how you restored and excavated this work, right? Like what were the processes? What were the techniques? Where did you go geographically? And also how was it funded, right? Because this kind of work isn't free. So I'd be very curious to hear about that. Um, if you could share some of your thoughts, Nick. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, this project for me personally was um, one of the most exhilarating things I've done musically. Uh, as a composer, to really dig into the manuscript that was written you know, nearly 200 years ago um, was just such a, a treat to, to really look at the handwriting and examine all of the musical processes that Boulogne went through to create his only surviving opera. Um, throughout the process, we, we determined as a group that the manuscript was actually not in Boulogne's um, handwriting, that was likely done by a, um, a, a script or some other writer. And in that process, there of course were a lot of uh, mistakes in both of the actual notes the accidentals of what pitches are supposed to be there. So as a group, we spent um, the beginning of, of the pandemic remotely discussing this um, scene by scene. And we have probably hundreds of pages of documentation of us discussing and um, really digging into each and every note and every phrase of the piece. And even at times, and my colleagues can, in, discuss this as well, piecing in new um, new elements. There is a missing chorus at one point and mm. some missing bass notes. And um, the, so that was a really fascinating part of the reconstruction. I don't know if, if Stephen or, or Lila or Mishkar can talk about maybe the, the chorus aspect and how we came about choosing which text to, to put in that really fit in with the, the musical material. Well, um, so there was, a chorus, which luckily still has the instrumental parts, so we have something to work with, but um, the vocal lines were left completely blank. No so, text, no music. Yes, exactly. So we've needed something if that chorus is still going to be able to be you know, performed. Um, so we went back to the original um, play that the opera was based on by Madame de Jean-Lys, who's also a fascinating, um, fascinating figure, and we kind of tried to figure out a scene that would work. And, and then Mishkar, you, you were the one who actually figured out how to fit in the French text to the 
True. We we were looking at where the where the play and the opera basically where they fit together um, in the story, and we found this spot where it was very specifically between two things in the music that it looked like this is exactly where we want where this text would have come from. So that's where we where we took it from 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 the original play that the opera is based on, um, and so. Um, we just basically, after that, we put the music, we transposed, or not transposed, uh, moved the music of some of the instruments over to the vocal parts and added that text from the play. And that's how we ended up there. And there was another instance where the, um, there's a major soprano aria that is missing the last two bars. Uh, right. Just completely yeah. blank. No, again, as, as with that chorus, no text, no music, nothing. So, um, Mishkar said the word transpose, which is actually what we did with, um, there was a, a midpoint phrase that fit very well at that end of the aria. So we transposed that into the key where the where the music was at that point. And uh, I think we had to extend it by one measure or something, but it was, it was very much Bologna's notes that we brought in to finish off this uh, amazing aria. There was, there was also a missing bass line in another one where we yeah. had to basically oh, come up with what uh, what the bass would have done for those eight bars or so, something. Thankful like that. for all those theory classes. <laughs> we did we did locate everything like so that a modern performer will know exactly what was our edition and what was um, Balone. And we also every time you know we change an accidental, we have that annotated. Mm -hmm. um, so it's in the full score. So we're trying to give as much sort of tool as many tools to the to the performers as possible. as possible. Yeah. So the conductor will also will always know whether this note was actually there or we had to do something for that note to be there. And may I ask, just in terms of the process, mm. were you beyond your, you know, undergraduate music theory courses, were there other things that were informing specific decisions, right? So did you mm. sit with a lot of his other work to sort of get a sense of where you thought his instincts would take him or were there other ways that you went about making some of these decisions yeah both of those things yeah, yeah. Uh, actually Lila and I played a few of his sonatas together um of the two violin he wrote many two violin sonatas he, he has a bit, very large body of work actually he has symphonies and quartets and and and, and sonatas for violin uh to, for two violins for violin piano many things uh, so he has actually a lot of a lot of music a lot of it also didn't survive. There are uh, reportedly five operas he wrote, of which this one is the only one that is now extant. Uh, the other ones are just completely lost at this well, point. Well, there's a couple pieces, you know, that are surviving. From the opera, and but right. not much. We did spend some time looking at those um, other, you know, surviving fragments of his, of his work as well to kind of have some range of comparison. And of course, you know, um, a knowledge of the, the style of the period, which was so widespread, which I think is something we're all, you know, very familiar with and have spent a lot of time, time in, in that, you know, early classical and later classical style. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's almost a, a hallmark of the piece when you're, when you're listening to it, it feels like this is very much of the, the style that I would have heard before, right? There's a way that it feels very, very familiar and very accessible because of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Lee, you did mention one other thing, and that was about the, the sort of the funding of this mm -hmm. project and how it sort of came about. Um, I, I think that for Opera Ritrovata, 
this is um, was really kind of a passion project at first. Um, this is the core mission of, of the organization. And this was a goal of ours for a long time is to really um, dig into this piece and, and reconstruct it and create an edition that was um, available to perform for modern, um, modern players. Um, and we really got a, a, a fire under, under our, our seats um, through the LA Opera, which was mm -hmm. instrumental in sort of really pushing us to actually sit down and, and do the work for their production in the, the fall of 2020. Actually, James Conlon was, was involved a little bit in the process as well. Um, it, yeah, for example, one thing that I can recall is that the numbering system of, of the dance suites, he requested that be the specific numbering system. So we, we went with it. So that, that uh, came, came from, from Conlon. So we had at least a little bit of collaboration with, with <laughs> Yeah, and, and we are very grateful to the LA Opera for yes. giving us the, the funding to really wrap up the project and, and make it a reality. Shout out LA Opera. Yeah, shout out to them for real. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so switching gears a, a little bit, I mean, yes, you. this is an incredible thing to be excavating uh, uh, historical work, talking, getting to look at something that was, that was written over 200 years ago. Mm. And at the same time, we have to talk about how it's relevant to now. Mm. I mean, obviously you see some way that it's relevant to now, otherwise we wouldn't even be talking about it. So mm. I wonder if you can just get into that. And from a few different perspectives, I, I think there's, how is, how is even the fact that we're just hearing about it or or kind of the trajectory of things being lost and things being uncovered with Balone's work, how is that relevant to us now? Um, how is the story of the anonymous lover, how's the things that he's talking about in his work, what's influencing where his work, how is that relevant now? Um, and I'll, I'll pass that to you, Stephen, to answer for us. What are your thoughts? Um well, I think the the idea of recovering lost treasure is nothing new. You know, we we are all mm -hmm. looking for ways to to preserve and to um, to enhance our experience of what what has been in the past, what we've come from, really. And you know, in this case of Bologna as a as a person, you know, this this is a guy who we have evidence spent at least some time under the same roof as Mozart. This is the person who conducted the premieres of the Paris symphonies of Joseph Haydn. This is somebody who is really crucial to the musical life of Paris uh, in the second half of the 18th century. And I don't, I don't see, I mean, first of all, if you don't learn about this, then you don't have, you know, there's, there seems to be a missing link in your education, right? If you don't learn about somebody mm -hmm. who was this prominent performer, uh, in a global city, you know, even at that time, Paris is a global city. People came there from all over the world um, to experience things. So this is this is a person who is known by John Adams, you know, by Haydn, by Mozart. We still perform Haydn. We still perform Mozart, right? You know, I I, <laughs> I would hesitate to try to count the number of performances of the operas of Mozart that Minnesota Opera has done, right? Mm -hmm. You you will mm -hmm. you will see Mozart on the stage there. So if this person was connected to Mozart in some way and had some influence on him, as some people suggest. Um, I think it's really important to kind of flesh that out and get to know the source, get to know the person. Um, in terms of the 
the text of the opera and the plot, uh, it has it has a lot of that revolutionary spirit that was going around Paris at the time. You know, you have you have this woman who is uh, independently wealthy. She controls her own life, and she's being approached by a suitor. I know Minnesota Opera also has this uh, long history of bel canto, and so the audiences there will know very well the elixir of love. This was decades before that, and it's the same basic thing. You know, where you have this revolutionary idea of a woman who's deciding what she wants to do with her own life. And she's approached by a suitor who is of lower social rank than her. And she decides that, you know, she loves him and she's going to marry for love, not for status, not for any of this. Um, and I, I can't really think of anything more modern than somebody who is from a historically weaker population, you know, a historically less empowered population um, being the hero of the story and being in charge of her own destiny. I think that's... Uh, that is as modern as you can get. Yeah, and if I could jump in a little bit on that, I mean, I think the themes of the opera, it might not be immediately apparent, sort of the more revolutionary connections, but I think for audiences at that time, um, some the way that the um, peasants in the story are really held up as sort of models for the aristocrats. And that's something that in the original play is even a little bit more apparent where, um, there is a peasant who speaks in dialect and gets the last words of the entire um, play, which was not super typical, you know, for French theater at the time. And also the way that I think the music of Boulogne is just, it's just so important on its own, you know, standing on its own, not even not being compared to anything else. The way that the instrumental parts are very virtuosic, much more so than, you know, the usual kind of opera parts at this time. As a violinist, I've, I've played a lot of these these parts, so it's something that I, you know, but for him, being a swordsman, there's actually this really c deep connection between bow arms in this period and, and swordsmanship. And so there's these kind of heroic themes that go through the orchestral parts where Bologna is taking the story of this woman who is independent and making her own choices and kind of bringing all this depth to it and also using Sturm und Drang and some music that you wouldn't necessarily associate with Gallant style with these really powerful trios and, and arias which um, have a kind of opera seria flavor to them as well. So I think that Boulogne really brings this, this power to this, this story. Um, and there are these courses which kind of are, are you know, like putting um, Leontin, the heroine, in this position of being, you know, the aristocrat in these different interesting ways. And of course, Boulogne was such a huge figure during his own time. I think sometimes it's easy forget as a musician, I mean, he was like one of the biggest celebrities. Like I think Mozart and Haydn would have been jealous of him mm. because of his fame. Like he was just, he was just huge. Um, there's a story about Marie Antoinette going and like, just to like see him ice skate. Like she just had to like go and like kind of like the queen herself is like, you know, I need a celebrity. Um, oh, yeah, he was a superstar basically. Was a superstar, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's also striking me that um, with what you're saying about about anonymous lovers specifically and about this woman who's empowered, who uh, has actually has control of her own wealth and, and destiny. It kind of alludes to something that we talk about on this show a lot is being able to see stories where people of color or just marginalized people in general get to experience joy also, not just telling our stories of our pain or our mm -hmm. trauma. And it's important to tell the truth about that, but uh, it's striking me that 
uh, Bologna was kind of on that wave too of, you know, let's, let's show these folks in, in some joy or having some sense of, um, some sense of empowerment. It's important to have that balance. And that's definitely relevant to us now and something that marginalized folks of, of all types are talking about and just the variety of representation that's available mm -hmm. to us. So yeah, thank you. I think that's super relevant. <laughs> Preach page. Facts. There was a lot of interesting thing, things that everyone shared over the course of the past few minutes. Um, kind of backtracking a little bit to bring us to our next question, Stephen, you mentioned um, kind of this standard in the opera industry to highlight, you know, the works of Mozart, which is not necessarily a bad thing, you know, as a bass player myself, playing in pits so on and so forth. I love that, you know, it's just a chunk, 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 you know, it's, it's beautiful music, right? But mm -hmm. Lila, you also bring up a really interesting point about kind of the virtuosic nature of Bologna's work and how, you know, it brings in all these other elements and pieces. And uh, from a social context, you know, and musical context, because I know this is something that is important to you, specifically Lila, which you mentioned in our pre-production meetings, how, um, why is it important for us to kind of remain like socially committed and culturally committed to excavating historically oppressed works and underrepresented composers? Like, why is that something that we should continue to press forward through passion projects or privately funded or what have you? Yes, of course. I mean, I think it's, it's so important. I think that in a lot of sense, we have a really incomplete in some ways, false understanding of music history there that I have been, shocked as just you know going through and then realizing how many amazing people have been just sort of forgotten about because of the process of the canon because of the prejudice you know in different you know in the performing arts world and musicology there are all these amazing um composers musicians all these amazing works of art that you know could be lost and then of course it's so critical because of you know issues of representation and mm. telling you know the story and, you know, not making people think that there's this kind of, that it's exclusionary, that, that this, that music oh, wow. is exclusionary. Um, it's just so important. And, you know, as teaching, I've gotten to see firsthand how much mm. um, telling, you know, these sort of bringing in these types of, these types of music, how much it really matters to the students um, oh, and yes. how much they respond to hearing, um, you know, these, different composers, like um, I teach at a program where, you know, some of the students, they're coming in with a pretty blank slate to music history. Hmm. And it's amazing the way they respond to different music um, and the way that it's not at all, you know, based on what the canon is and how, you know, the emotional responses, there's no reason that music that's part of the canon is necessarily more powerful than things that have been left out. So there's all this richness that we are potentially missing. Um, that I think it's just so critical that we, you know, include. Well, and this, this is, it, it brings to mind for me, this thought that somehow music is a finite resource, which is kind of a preposterous idea. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, right. There, there is room for all of these voices, you know, like we're not going to displace Mozart because Minnesota opera is putting on the anonymous. Letter, right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you make Mozart richer by putting on the anonymous lover like you mm. people understand and enjoy it better if they have that interstitial connection you know and they have they see those those influences between between people these conversations artistically and if you suppress it and make it sort of 
a Mozart was dropped on earth by God kind of thing. Um, mm. I, I don't know that that really is distasteful to me. Um, I, I, I don't like this idea that, you know, Mozart sort of came out of nowhere and was birthed out of the head of his father or something. You know, like, it's just, it's, it's <laughs> these legends that remove the, the canonical so-called canonical composers from their humanity really makes us weaker, I think, as artists and as human beings. Because if we understand the humanity of of Mozart, if we understand the humanity of Bologna, and we we understand their strengths and their weaknesses, their attributes and their failings, um, I, I think we just understand the process of becoming artists and becoming humans much more fully. Yeah, uh, thank you for that, right? I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that the folks who are in the canon are in the canon because other people actively made decisions to put them there, right? Mm, and indeed. in the same way, there were decisions made that other things were not canonical at the same time. And I think we're just really grateful for the work that you're doing that really gives us an intervention there that pushes back against the idea that there's something about, you know, the meritocracy that that mm. results how who is it we learn and, and what we learn and what we're exposed to and even what companies like ours understand is available to produce. Do you have a website or any social media handles that you'd like to share for our audience to check out what it is that you're doing? Absolutely, yeah. Um, you can find our website at operaretravata.org. Um, and of course, we have, you know, a Facebook page and Instagram, all under Opera Retrovata. Which is spelled O-P-E-R-A-R-I-T-R-O-V-A-T-A, for those of you who don't speak Italian. <laughs> Thank you for that. So everybody go check them out, um, support what they're doing, both in your participation and with your pocketbooks, um, and make sure that they know how much we appreciate the work that they're doing, which only adds to our field. And I'd just like to say for all of us, thank you so much um, for having us um, and having this really important conversation and bringing this attention to Bologna. And thanks to Minnesota Opera for producing it in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. And we'll be right back after another brief break. And we are back. Thank you to the fine folks from Opera Reach Nevada for being with us. That was a wonderful conversation. I hope mm -hmm. everybody enjoyed it. And we couldn't leave you without your favorite segment and a one and a two and a one two three four peanut butter jelly time peanut butter jelly time peanut butter jelly time peanut butter jelly 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 that's right it's time for pure black joy Pure Black Joy, PB&J, a little snack for your soul. This is where we just talk about anything that is for, by, and about Black people that is making us happy at the moment. And I'll go first, really quick. I don't know why this affected me so much, but the other day <laughs> when I opened up the internet and I saw that my Bayesian cousin, Rihanna, was yeah. pregnant. Uh. It just made me, it just 
<laughs> I started to tear up a little because I was like, come back. <laughs> That's so good. And those pictures with her and ASAP Rocky, and they just look mm. so happy and in love. And so I don't know why, because I don't even stand her like that. Like, you know, Beyonce obviously is my. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a part of the Beehive, but I guess now I'm a part of the Rihanna Navy. And yeah. I'm just going to. a Navy? Yeah, that's our fans, the Rihanna Navy. Wow. So, <laughs> so that's it. Just shout out to Robin Rihanna Fenty. Shout out to the, the island of Barbados and all of its beautiful people. We have a new royal <laughs> on the way. It's super exciting. So shout out to Rihanna. Yes. And in case anyone didn't know this, as she's considering baby names, Lee can be the name of a boy or a girl. <laughs> so Yo, I, think a, I think a little girl named Rocky could be cute. It it Rocky Lee. Rocky Lee oh. ASAP Fenty. Now that is a cute Wow. Name. Okay. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> it kind of works. <laughs> take, take notes. Take notes. <laughs> but who wants to go next? I will jump in there. Um, my pure black joy begins with a salute of two black women. Mm. Uh, first, Quinta Brunson for creating the really fantastic and hilarious new show Abbott Elementary, and then so, second, so you got on that uh, I got <laughs> all the way on, binged it um, <laughs> last week, and the second goes out to our own Paige Reynolds for turning us on to it. Damien and I are obsessed, like absolutely obsessed with it we've been like running around quoting it to each other i do want to say for the world my mom was an elementary school principal growing up and the character that cheryl lee ralph plays who's a kindergarten teacher on the show um just so reminds me of my mom in so many ways um not the principal who is the most interesting character on the show but it's also extraordinarily bad at her job. <laughs> and I know that that was not the principle my mom was, um, but it was such a, a fun, fun show for the, the sake of itself, embracing blackness, embracing all things Philly. Um, I spent a lot of time in Philly. My husband went to conservatory there and it's love a place Philly. that's near, uh, I, I love Philly. And the show Philly. is the Phillyest thing I have seen. <laughs> since like the fresh prince so it's it's i highly recommend it it's so much fun um everybody's doing really really great work on it and quinta if you are listening we absolutely love you you have done a huge huge service by bringing entertainment to tuesday nights i'm so glad that i could put y'all on So if anybody else there, like out there still needs convincing, elementary, get your life. No, I mean I still haven't caught it yet, but I'm sure given everyone's endorsements, not just the two of you, but just everyone, literally, it seems like on my timeline. (laughs) (laughs) It will probably be my pure black joy for our next episode. So get ready. But Sam, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. about you? Yeah, similar in, in the entertainment space. Um, shout out, I don't know if y'all know who Charles D. King is from Macro Entertainment, did Judas and the Black Messiah, you know, the rest of the squad. I mean, 
just the dynamic cat. I've been reading a lot about some of the work that he's been doing lately in this other, this venture capital firm based out of Harlem called Harlem Capital. It's all minority black run. Um, man, just shout out to those cats. You know, they inspire me every day. So um, if y'all don't know about Macro, go check them out because I think y'all be <laughs> pleasantly surprised at some of the movies that they're responsible for financing and producing. Some of your favorite movies and shows on TV right now comes from a black owned production company. Hey. Go check them out. Macro okay. Media. Macro Media, Charles D. King. We'll put Charles. a link in the show notes and people can can go check them out. Yep. Nice. Yeah, that's exciting. Judas and the Black Messiah was a brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, it's a great film. film. Yeah. It's complete. And I, I feel like I don't want to get, you know, messy, but I feel like how they played Lakeith Stanfield and our boy kind of against each other in the Golden Globes, I didn't really feel too good about that. They both equally acted at an extremely high level. And yeah. to kind of put them against each other in that category was not equitable in my mind. Yeah, yeah. But if if it were um, about the awards, mm. then I see mm. I see the logic of putting them both in the supporting category. Because I, I got you. That, mm-hmm. that leading category might have made it a little harder for Daniel to win. Um, but oh, it's so, a different conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, are yeah, a, yeah. a SAG voting household. Um, oh, come so on now. We, we talk a lot about like the strategies around that. Uh-oh. I won't say who we're voting for. Um, this year, but a certain lead actress nomination has my R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Okay. That's all I'm going to say. I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Can we pause this recording? <laughs> okay, I think I... I said I didn't have a pure question. Yeah, you do. But, I, but I thought, but I I did think of one. I did it made me feel one. sad when you said you didn't so, have I, one. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I that too. I was like, that would be real sad. Um, what you got? What you got? I don't know if I've mentioned the Black Film Archive on here. No. I don't think I you told me about it though. I can't believe I haven't. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I, I can't believe I haven't mentioned it because the Black mm. Film Archive First of all, let me start with, it is an archive of films, Black films from, I believe the late 1800s to like 1970s. Oh, wow. wow. Yes. So you can go on the website. There's associated blog to uh, different stories about different movies and actors. Um, For as many of them as possible, they have direct links to where you can watch them, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's on streaming channels. Over the holidays, me and my family used it to watch Emperor Jones. Um, Oh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we we got our lives. Um, And I think it came out around September, October of the past year. Um, I also mention it because the creator is a good friend of mine who I met my freshman year of Howard, Maya S. Cade. I am so proud of her. Like I could cry. (laughs) Like I probably have cried a couple times. (laughs) She's one of those people who with her work has just always Mm. reflected how much she loves black people Mm. like how much she loves us that is one thing i have always known about her and so for her to share 
that with the world in this way and for the world to recognize her brilliance and for me to know there's a person like her behind this <laughs> and doing this who truly cares about us it's just uh, it means the world to me and shout out to her because um yeah. the girl the good sis is getting magazine profiles she's okay. getting interviews <laughs> she's getting awards uh she's getting special awards from like the biggest critics associations i can't mm. even remember the names because i'm not in film like that but seriously like look it up there <laughs> getting special category awards and for uh, achievement like stuff that people usually get after a certain point in their career when they've done a lot like they've been struck like hidden for a little bit right because so, she's about your age right oh yeah we're the same oh, age that's ex mm -hmm. extraordinary our birthdays oh. are like 10 days apart in fact oh. okay maya <laughs> yes, yes shout out to maya shout out to maya she is so brilliant i am so proud and y'all look up the black film archive because it is truly incredible like even if it was someone else who made it like i'm glad it was her don't get me wrong i'm glad it was <laughs> but i would be amazed either either way so yeah i'm looking at it right now watch and this is this is like really this is really fire and it has all the things that i feel like you're looking for i don't know about y'all but there's certain times specifically specifically when i'm in the studio and i have films on the background there's very specific energies and vibes that I look for sometimes and you can't find them. Like there aren't the key words. And I'm talking specifically black films, mm -hmm. right? There was, um, um, what's a girl's name? I'm looking at her right now. Um, Jackie Brown. Mm -hmm. Oh, Pam Greer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a Pam Greer uh, movie that I was looking for the other day and I just couldn't find it, but I found it on Amazon, right? And I had to pay for it, whatever, to rent it. And I was, I'm like, oh, this is exactly, I don't have to try and search through some hokey dope algorithm to find what I need. It's right here, but it's like every decade. This is amazing. Y'all check this out. This is fire. Shout out Maya. We'll put a link in the show notes as well. Well, that's exciting. Yes. yes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone. Thank you to Sam, Samuel Phillips, for joining us today. I'm cheers. sure this will not be the last time. <laughs> and, and thank you once again to the fine folks from Opera Retrovada. Um, we had a wonderful time talking to you. And thank you to all of you, all of you listeners yeah. out there yeah. in cyberspace. We're so thankful that you all come and you listen to us. Um, we'll be back in two weeks with part three of our Bologna Palooza. Um, <laughs> and we will be joined by... Um, We'll be joined by Professor Julian Ledford, Yay. who wrote a really fascinating paper um, on uh, Joseph Ballone and the use of the term Black Mozart mm -hmm. to, uh, to describe him. I don't think anybody would be surprised to learn that we are all anti. Do you have the Black Mozart? Um, but we had a really great conversation with him about that, about Joseph Ballone's life. It was really inspiring, really cool. Um, and I think you all are really going to enjoy that conversation. So tune in in two weeks from now. And I think that's everything other than rate, review, subscribe, five stars, please. Five. 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 
I'm not yep. interested in mm-hmm. any, I don't care about your one star, your three star. <laughs> I don't even care about your four star reviews. I want five. <laughs> and put some words with us, please. <laughs> It'll only take you a, a little minute to do that. Just a second. Just, a Just you know, us. you already like us. Just say that. <laughs> and, you know, of course, share us with your friends. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, what have you, the score at mnoffer.org. Send us an email. And I think other than that, we are out. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye, America. <laughs> and India. <laughs> <laughs>